If, you, uh, if you're a guest today, you came on a special day. This is Lisa Harper, one of my good friends and uh, soon-to-be former student of mine. you got to finish your... I, I will. Okay. I will. I'll do my best. All right. Y'all need to like, be really enthusiastic today because I could fail. And so I really, I will give you dark chocolate if you'll send him emails and say, I think she should pass. She's in the Doctor of Ministry program at Denver Seminary, and uh, I think I've had two or three classes with her, I don't know, and we're both in class all next week. So are these your final classes? Mm -hmm. And then you start your thesis and project. That's right. Good. So I'll keep whipping you. I have a really smart first reader. I think I'll be okay. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So uh, let's say hello to Lisa. Thank you. Let me pray for you. Yes, sir. Father, I pray for my good friend, Lisa. Lord, uh, a woman clearly of uh, dignity and character who knows you well. And uh, what a treat that we have today to listen to her. So I already know that um, we will be blessed. So I pray that you will be blessed and she will be blessed. So uh, give her the right words to say. Let Mm -hmm. her have fun up here. And uh, thank you, Lord, for bringing her to us and her family. It's good to have them here, too. Mm -hmm. Thank you for loving all of us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Dr. Howard. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Howard. Well, I know, but I'm still trying to get an A. Um, I need to make a couple of qualifications before we dive into God's Word. First of all, I know y'all don't have women here a lot. And so I wanted to tell those of you who feel comfortable with a woman preaching, I'll be short. Because my inner Pentecostal really is much heavier than my inner Baptist. So I'll make it short. Secondly, um, I feel like a donkey at the Kentucky Derby because Dr. Howard is... My favorite seminary professor I've ever had, and I'm not just saying that because he's still grading me. I don't know if you realize you have one of the top New Testament theologians in the country, if not the world, right here at Dillon, but I would pretty much walk here from Tennessee, where I'm from, just to hear him preach and teach. That's my third qualification. I'm from Nashville. So we use a lot of hanging diphthongs in our language, so I know it'll be hard to follow me. Y'all is not a bad word. It's an inclusive term. And for those of you um, in the grass who thought you were coming to an essential oils conference, it'll be over fast, and there's great snacks afterwards. Uh, Last thing is, y'all, I'm a spitter. I get so excited when I teach. I tend to spit. I don't think it'll carry that far, but with the the altitude and the thin air, I'm I'm not sure. But um, let's pray one more time. If you know the person you're sitting next to, I need the prayer. Um, and I kind of need y'all's prayer. So if you know the person you're sitting next to, you can't get them sick, go ahead and touch them. Don't grope them. It is church. If you don't know the person you're sitting next to, just nod awkwardly. But let's go back to the Lord. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain the bright morning star, the lily of the valley, Jesus, 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 thank you so much that when you ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father, you did not leave us as orphans. You left us this love letter called the Bible and you left us your Holy Spirit who reminds us even on this beautiful, warm July day in the mountains that we have the right to call the creator of these mountains, Father, Dad. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would quicken us with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes that see more clearly, hearts that understand a little more fully, and ears that would hear more loudly who you are as our Redeemer and who you've called us to be as your sons and daughters. Bless your word 
so that it won't return void this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would give me a quick tongue. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Um, Dr. Howard told me that he had been preaching a series on Leviticus. And, you know, most people don't think of Leviticus and love and liberty in the same context. That's kind of like being on keto and going to Dunkin' Donuts. And so I thought, there's no way I'm going to exegete following him. That would be like going to Bono's church and singing a solo. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring more of a personal word this morning, but I'm going to do it in that same context of using a passage that seems like an unlikely place to go to for joy. For those of you Enneagram 1s and 8s who are taking notes, this is called The Theology of Joy, and we're going to go to the book of Job. I know that sounds like sticking your hand in a blender, but just stay with me. It gets pretty good. The book of Job, if you brought your brick-and-mortar Bible, Job is about an inch from the front. I see most of you have it memorized or using your iPhones. Let me say this for those of you who are under 40. How many under 40 people do we have, DCC? Y'all are good looking this morning. Um, I always feel like people in Colorado look so much better than those of us in Nashville because we fry everything. Um, But one thing I have noticed is under 40s a lot of times don't have a brick and mortar Bible. And we never bring them to places like an amphitheater because you, it's, you, know, you want to bring your iPhone. It's easier when you're carrying a chair. Um, but if you don't have a brick-and-mortar Bible in your home, in your apartment, in your condo, I just want to encourage y'all to find somebody here at DCC and get a brick-and-mortar Bible that you can write in, that you can journal in. If you don't have a brick-and-mortar Bible, y'all, that's like an old man in short shorts. That's just sad. And so get yourself a brick and mortar Bible just for your bedside table so that you can look through it dated. I was telling Dr. Howard, I've had this one for more than 10 years. I usually trade every 10 years, but my father wrote in this one before he passed away. So this one's precious to me. Okay, we're gonna look at um, Job chapter one, the end of chapter one. Before we go there, I'm gonna set it up. I know most of you know Job's story. He was an incredibly wealthy man in the ancient era, and he was a good man. God's word tells us that not only was he wealthy, basically if he were in our era, he would be driving a Bentley, live in a gated community. I mean, he would be traded on Wall Street. In this ancient era, he was a very, very wealthy man, but he was a good man. The beginning of Job, we hear, I didn't mean to say that like all wealthy people aren't good. I know there's some good people who are wealthy, um, but a few of them cut me over on their way to Vail this morning as I was driving up from Denver. But I know there can be really good wealthy people, but Job was extraordinary. He used his considerable wealth to help other people. It says that he prayed continuously. It says that he got up every morning at five o'clock and prayed. It's really Hebrew hyperbole. We don't know if it was exactly five o'clock, but he was in the habit of praying. And so I always picture Job in my mind's eye as wearing Wranglers because I'm a Tennessee girl. I don't do guys in skinny jeans. Um, So I picture him in Wranglers with worn knees because he spends so much time praying before he goes out on his John Deere and makes all of his wealth in that agriculture area. He had 10 kids. He loved his kids well. And then just a few verses into his story, we hear that he loses everything. He loses his wealth, he loses his health, 
and he loses all 10 of his children through a tragic accident. And God makes it really clear that he loses all those things through no fault of his own. He hasn't done anything. There's no secret email account. He has done nothing to bring this punishment upon himself. He's a good guy and he loses everything. That's like biting into a brownie and breaking your tooth on a rock. Because don't you think if you do it right, then good things will happen to you? Don't we normally assume that? Even as believers, I am 57, I'll be 58 in next month in August. And most of the time, I'm, I'm a good girl. I love God's word, I love his church, but I am also single. And my husband is lost and won't stop to ask for directions. And I have been single my whole life. And so sometimes I think, Jesus, if I'm faithful and I'm trying to do all my papers in Dr. Howard's class and I'm in church all the time and I love your word and I'm not married, why don't you give me a high metabolism and hair that's not chemically dependent? I mean, that seems only fair. And so it doesn't seem fair that Job is a really, really good guy and he loses everything. But instead of being bitter, here's his response. It's at the end of chapter one. This is verse 20 if you're following along on your phone. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped God. We tend to think in, in our culture that worship and weeping are incongruent. That if you are in a difficult season, if you're in a season of grief, if you're in a season of sorrow, if you're in a season of hardship, then you've got to wait until you kind of get it together to worship again. I love that it says Job shaved his head, he tore his robe. Those were signs of deep grief in his era. So he wasn't playing, he wasn't pretending. I was at a women's conference recently and I asked a woman how I could pray for her. And she said, oh no, I don't need prayer. And I was like, you're about to after I kick you in the shins for being a liar. Um, because, you know, as believers, we don't have to pretend like we have it all together. Over and over again, in God's word, the saints went through seasons where they lost their spiritual groove and they said, I am struggling. I need prayer. I need friends to pick up the corners of my mat, carry me to the roof and lower me to Jesus because I can't carry the weight of my own life right now. I love his authenticity. He says, I ache. This is really, really hard. He shaves his head, tears his robe, and then he raises his hands. Or if he was Baptist, he sat on one. He worships even as he grieves. Y'all, that right there, man, we could stay there for a month or two. That worship and grief are not incongruent. We don't have this continuum of emotions with one end being emotions that are appropriate in the economy of God and the other end being emotions we should hide. If you are grieving, it is appropriate to come to the Lord and say, I ache, to tell other people, I ache, I need help right now. That has been difficult for me to learn. I feel like I'm still in the kindergarten season of learning to admit how difficult I am. Uh, how difficult life can be and how much I need help. I had a surgeon not too long ago. I had to have a, a back operation. I had to have a fusion in my back. And I really liked the surgeon. Good guy. And so I knew he was going to be faced with my fanny without a sheet on it because of where he was operating. And I was a little embarrassed about that. And so I got one of those temporary tattoos because I'm not as cool as those of you under 40. And I put a ten temporary tattoo on one of my, my flanks that was Bugs Bunny and it said, what's up, doc? 
because I thought, you know, when he peels back the sheet, I want him to not be traumatized. And so I thought he would like me. And when I came in for the follow-up from the surgery, he told me I was one of the worst patients he had ever had. And I was like, Doc, what do you mean? I like put Bugs Bunny on my bottom. And I mean, I've, I've really been friendly. And he said, no, it's not that. He said, Lisa, when I asked you on a scale of one to 10, how much pain you were in, you said a two. And I was like, well, yes, sir. And he said, based on what I found inside your back and based on your MRIs, you were almost crippled. There's no way that couldn't hurt. And I said, well, I didn't want to be a baby. I didn't want to inconvenience you. And he said, the fact that you wouldn't be honest with me as your surgeon about your level of pain reveals that you don't trust in my capacity to help you. And I just went, (laughs) I do that to the Lord all the time. I come before the Lord and I'm like, I know you're so busy with everything going on in the Middle East. I know you're so busy with all the division in America. I I just want to be a good girl. Y'all, that is not biblically defensible. It is appropriate for us to come before the creator and the lover of our souls and say, I ache. Job does it throughout this story and it's legitimate. When you get to Job 19, I call that the Prozac pastor. I mean, Prozac chapter, he goes even deeper. Job says, he has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. I know that sounds kind of interesting in this Hebraic poetry, but what he's saying is my wife and I aren't sleeping in the same bed anymore. I'm on the couch watching HBO. Even the young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my flesh and and to my bones, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. In other words, I have never been in a pit this deep. I don't know about y'all, but the last year and a half has not been my favorite season of life. It's been a difficult season. I was in the hospital three months ago, much like Dr. Howard, with uh, COVID and a really serious case of pneumonia. My pneumatologist told me he found out that I spoke for a living, and he said, it's unlikely you're going to be able to continue your vocation because your lungs have been so compromised that you're not going to be able to carry enough breath to speak publicly. And I got tickled. I thought, I bet some people have been praying that for a long time because I'm such a windbag. But y'all, that time in the hospital wasn't even that big a deal because it wasn't the most difficult thing I've gone through as an older adult. I told you I am single, have never been married. I tease about that, but most of the reason that I'm not married is because I was really, really foolish in my 20s and 30s. I was very, very drawn to abusive men. And so God protected me from the men I was attracted to and the few good godly guys that I dated, y'all married them, or God protected them from me because I was hot mess on a stick. And so by the time I got to my 40s, I didn't think I'd get to have children. I didn't think I'd be a mom. And it's too long a story to share in this heat. But by the absolute grace of God, because he is a redeemer, because he restores unto us 
seasons that locusts have gobbled. He restored unto me what I thought I had lost, and I stepped into the miracle of adoption as a 47-year-old woman. And so I, I began this adoptive journey with a precious young woman. I'll tell you her name is Marie. That's not her real name. And she was a hardcore crack addict. It's a long story as to how we got aligned, but it was an absolute miracle. She had chosen to keep her baby um, because she also worked as a, as a prostitute. And so I spent about six months of life very, very closely with Marie. I spent Christmas that year in a crack house. Um, I actually got in trouble with the that particular state's FBI because one of her Johns came to the door and she was seven months pregnant at the time. And so I answered the door and I think just because I was talkative and bigger, he thought I was the new girl at the house. And so he was kind of flirtatious. And I said, aren't you Larry? He was like, yeah, baby, I'm Larry. And I said, you're a plumber and you're married and have five children, don't you? And he was like, well, uh, yes. And I said, you better. And then I used words that aren't in the Bible and chased him back to his van, not, not knowing that the house was under surveillance. And they had me on tape, chased him to his van. But it was a crazy season and it was a miraculous season um, because the doctors had said at the beginning that Marie would not carry the baby to term. She was 82 pounds when she got pregnant. And then every trimester was really, really tricky. And so I told all my friends back in Nashville, y'all don't give me baby showers. Do not give me any gifts. This is such a precarious pregnancy. I really won't know until Marie has the baby if I'll actually be bringing Anna Price home. Marie let me name the little girl she was carrying and I named her Anna because some of y'all know about Anna's story, the prophetess in Luke's gospel. And she was over 100 years old when Jesus came in as a baby being baptized to the temple. And she waited and waited and waited. And I know I'm not that old, but I, I feel like Anna sometimes. So I named her Anna and then Price because my little brother's middle name is Price and we have kind of a little bit of a Jerry Springer family and I thought that would help redeem some of our lineage. And so um, I told him I wasn't sure I'd, I'd get to bring Anna Price home and just to wait until I brought her home on on having a shower. And so it was precarious right up into the very end. And four days before I was supposed to bring Anna Price home, she had made it all the way through the end of that third trimester. I got a phone call. I lived in a little cottage south of Nashville at the time. I got a phone call from my adoption agent. And I said, hey, Ange, how are you doing? And she said, Lisa, I called to tell you the good news. She said, every single entity has approved you and only you as the one who will take Anna Price home from the hospital. Every T has been crossed, every I has been dotted. You are officially, legally, Anna Price's mama. I got off the phone with her. You know how when you've been carrying what feels like a heavy burden up a steep hill, when you finally get to the top, the relief you feel just kinda overwhelms you. I just hung up the phone, sat down on the couch, and just started bawling, crying. Gentlemen, I know that can be weird to you. We cry when we're happy, and we cry when we're sad, and usually I consume carbohydrates at both ends of the continuum, but I just wept in gratitude. I, I just couldn't believe that I was actually going to get to bring her home, and so I called my mom, 
My mom's name is Patty. She lives in Florida. I called my mom to tell her that she was going to have a granddaughter. She has three grandsons. One of them is here today, my nephew, John Michael. But I said, Mama, you're going to have a granddaughter. I'm, I'm going to bring Anna Price home. And she started crying. And then I called two or three of my closest friends, and they started crying. And um, then there was a knock at my door. And I got up and went to the door, and it was the UPS guy. And he had this big box. And so I signed for it. I took that box. I went over. I cut it open. And there was a note inside from a dear friend of mine in Atlanta. And the gist of the note said, Lisa, I know we're not supposed to give you any gifts until you bring Anna Price home. But I saw this in a store, and I just could not pass it up because I know like I know my name. You're going to bring this baby home and the generational sin that's affected her is going to be wiped as, as white as snow. And it was a white mink coat. And so I sat back down on the couch and cried again because nobody's ever given me a fur. And then the phone rang again. And I saw that it was Angie again, my adoption agent. And I said, hey, Angie. Because I assumed that she was calling to tell me that there was a paper I needed to scan and sign and send back to her and... And as soon as I heard her voice, I knew that wasn't the case because all the life had gone out of her voice. And I'm still, eight and a half years later, not legally um, free to say exactly what happened next, but I can say that I lost the adoption, that the bottom fell out of the adoption, and we were all pretty devastated by what happened to both mother and baby. And I collapsed back on the couch And I wasn't sure I would get up off the couch. You know, those seasons when you feel like your your heart has just been run over by a Mack truck and you aren't sure if you can peel it up off the pavement. I don't know how long I was sitting there, 10, 15 minutes, maybe an hour. When my phone rang again and I looked at caller ID and saw it was my mom, and I thought, oh, my heavens to Betsy, there's no way I can tell my mom that I just lost the baby. I mean, it was just an hour ago, I told her she was going to have a granddaughter. The phone kept ringing. I don't know if your mom's like this, but if I don't answer, after a certain point, my mama will dial 911. And so I thought I probably need to go ahead and answer. And so I said, hey, mama. And as soon as I said, hey, my mom said, honey, I am so sorry to call you with such bad news on such a celebratory day, but I just got off the phone with my surgeon And what I thought was just an ongoing bladder infection is appendiceal cancer. And she said, honey, the the prognosis is really bad, and I'm really scared, and I just need you to pray for me. And so I didn't tell her in that phone call that I'd lost Anna Price, that I'd lost the baby. I just prayed for my mama, hung up the phone. I thought, God, you have picked the wrong girl. I I don't know how to walk this out. I'm not faithful enough. I'm not mature enough spiritually or emotionally. I thought, why didn't you get, you know, Beth Moore? She's skinny and faithful or Priscilla Shire or something. I don't know how to walk this out. Maybe 15 minutes later, the phone rang again. It was my father. My parents divorced when I was a little girl. It was a very, very acrimonious divorce, a lot of physical violence in the divorce I hadn't spoken much in 40 years, so my dad didn't know what had just happened with my mom, and I hadn't called him that morning to tell him about Anna Price. And 
I, I thought he'll just keep calling if I don't answer. So I said, hey, dad. And I thought I'll just keep it short. And he said, baby. My dad's like a miniature John Wayne. He said, baby, got some bad news. He said, I just came from my surgeons and uh, the cancer's come back. He had battled colon cancer five years before, successfully, we thought. And he said, the cancer's come back. It's in my bones. It's in my lungs. They've given me two months to live. He said, now, baby, I'm not scared. I'm almost 80 years old. I know exactly where I'm going. After my parents' divorce, my dad was wild as a buck. But then God saved him in his 40s, and he took a beautiful turn. My dad was a godly man, and he said, um, I'm, not a, I'm not afraid. He said, but I don't know how to tell your, your sister. So I want you to tell your sister. I told you we we're a little Jerry Springer. And so he said, I want you to pray for me, and then I want you to call your sister. And so I got off the phone with my dad, and um, after praying for him, I called my sister. Two weeks later, I was in a hospital in Orlando, Florida. The surgeons told us that, that mom had a 50-50 shot at coming out of her surgery. And so we were in the waiting room. She was in there for four hours. After four hours, the surgeon called us in that waiting room, and he said, I've got mostly good news. He said, we, we got most of your mother's cancer. He said, there's some we couldn't get, but based on her age, he said, she won't die of cancer. She'll die of old age. We got most of it. So we celebrated, and two days later, mom was still in an intensive care surgery recovery room because her numbers just kept declining, and she wasn't recovering the way they thought she would. And that same surgeon called and he said, um, Lisa, I've got bad news. He said, the surgery was successful. But evidently, your mother's body was so weakened from the cancer that she is not coming out the way we thought she would. And he said, if her numbers continue to, to decline the way they're declining now, we're going to lose your mother in the next 24 hours. And he said, it's my understanding that you're a woman of faith. And so I called to tell you now would be the time to pray. I hung up from the surgeon, and that phone call had kind of agitated my mom. She was, she was sleeping, and she kind of stirred when I hung up the phone, and she motioned for me to come over to her, and so I leaned over the bed. She had been intubated for so long, she could only speak in a hoarse whisper, and she said, I need to see your father. My sister looked at me. Both of us assumed she meant my step father. My mom remarried when I was six and a half, a man named John Angel. And we assumed she meant John, but John had died a year and a half before. And so we thought she was just so, you know, agitated from the morphine. She didn't remember that, that John had passed away. And my sister went, you tell her, because my sister is very elegant and doesn't talk as much or as loud as I do. And so she was like, you have to tell. So I leaned back over mama's bed and as gently as I could, I explained to her that, that dad had passed away the previous November and that he wouldn't be able to come to the hospital. And she looked at me, her eyes completely clear, and she went, not that father. And I was like, oh, you're kidding me. You are kidding me. And she was very clear that she wanted my dad Harper to come to the hospital. Y'all, they hadn't really spoken in 40 years. And it was such an ugly, such an acrimonious divorce. I just, I hardly knew how to respond. So my sister and I walked out of her hospital room and 
called dad and I said, daddy, you know, I don't know if you know what's going on with mom. And he said, yeah, your sister told me. And I said, well, we just got off the phone with a surgeon and the surgeon is saying that um, mom might not make it. And she's asking uh, to see you. There was this long pause on the phone. And then my dad said, all right, give me an hour. Sure enough, an hour later, here comes my daddy. He always wore, he put himself through college, busting Bronx in the rodeo. So he always had a belt buckle, you know, bigger than his head. So he had this big old belt buckle and wranglers and work boots. He was a contractor and he just swaggered. 160 pounds sucking wet, but just swaggered. He comes swaggering down the hallway with the same daddy that the doctor had given two months to live. And he stopped outside my mom's hospital room. He looked at my sister and I and he said, Lisa, Teresa, I love you girls. I need you to stay out here because your mom and I need some privacy. And then he goes in to be with my mom. And I looked at my sister and I said, we're about to be on the news. Because I thought, he's, he's going to go in there and pull the plug or put a pillow. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It is gonna, just going to be a train wreck. And so we were both just so nervous outside my mom's hospital room. It was about 20 minutes. I was just about to go in when Daddy comes walking out again. And he just said simply, Lisa, Teresa, I love you girls. Your mama's going to be okay. I'll be back here same time tomorrow and swaggered off. So I go flying into mama's room, you know, half expecting her to not be alive anymore and instead she's sitting up in that hospital bed her colors back in her face she has her arms crossed with this totally peaceful expression on her countenance and she said Lisa Teresa your father anointed me with oil I'm going to be okay and I thought they're giving her medicinal pot I mean there's just no other explanation it has to be medical marijuana there's no way she can go from almost dead and hating my daddy to sitting up in bed, just calm as a cucumber. But sure enough, a week later, they released my mother from the hospital. She is now 84 years old. She walks six miles a day, healthy as a horse. But that's not the greatest miracle of that really dark season in my life. The greatest miracle is this. From that day forward, in April of 2012 until my daddy died in February of 2013, my mother and my father talked on the phone or saw each other in person every single day. They didn't recover their romance. It wasn't like that. It was this rich, precious friendship. They knew where the bodies were buried in each other's lives. And they just came back to this place of reconciliation that was so beautiful. My mom was the last person with my dad holding his hand and reading God's word to him. Before he went to heaven, he had made us change him into fresh pajamas. He was, you know, all hooked up. He was at home with hospice, but he was hooked up on two different IVs. And he was really emphatic about us changing his pajamas. And I was like, Daddy, you know, your pajamas are fine right now. It's going to be too hard to change all these wires. And he said, Lisa Diane, I'm about to meet Jesus, and I don't want to go up there in dirty pajamas. I was like, yes, sir. So we changed him. It was the most beautiful homegoing I've ever witnessed. And during that period that my mom was in the hospital, I got a phone call from a friend I hadn't seen in years. And she said, Lisa, I know you lost Anna Price two weeks ago. I know you have been just gutted. 
And she said, so this is going to sound really strange, but I just got home from Haiti last night. And while I was in Haiti, one of the young moms in the village I was visiting passed away. And she left behind a two-year-old. Doctors have told us that the baby she left behind will die in the next two months if somebody, really anybody, doesn't step in the gap to adopt her because she has HIV, she has tuberculosis, she has cholera. And while I was in the hospital with her, God spoke to me and said, Lisa Harper is supposed to be this baby's mama. And she said, so I just felt compelled to call you even though you're grieving and ask if you would prayerfully consider becoming Missy's mom. Would you pray about it? And I said, no, Michelle, I won't pray about that. I said, I've been praying about it for 30 years. Sign me up. Then I got off the phone and said a word that's not in the Bible. Because I thought, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to adopt a child in Haiti. That was nine years ago, y'all. My baby girl is sitting in the back. She's asleep because she's heard me preach one too many times. She's healthy as a horse. She turns 12 on Wednesday. I would have never guessed when I lost Anna Price, what God had in store for me. I would never guess when both of my parents were diagnosed with cancer and neither had a good prognosis that they would reconcile. I would never guess that God would take what I thought would take me out and use it to redeem my life in a way that I didn't even have the faith to pray for. Our God is not capricious. Most of the difficult stuff we go through is not God's hand causing it. He, he doesn't cause evil. That's not divinely causative. But he is a redeemer. And pain is rarely punitive in the economy of God. If you look at Job's life, when I look at my tiny little corner of the world, the pain that I've experienced is is more God saying, Lisa, you don't know it yet, but you're going to walk this out in a way that will bring me glory, and it's going to change the trajectory of your life. He's a good God. He's always a good God, even when life is difficult. Right after Job says, I'm not sure I can take one more step, he says this. It's usually the only verse people know from the book of Job. And it's because Nicole Mullen wrote a beautiful song based on this verse. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another at the end of this story. Before everything is restored to Job, Before his wife comes back, before they have more children, before his wealth is restored, Job says, my ears had heard about you, but now, now that I've trusted you in the dark, the lid has been taken off my joy. Now my eyes have seen you, and that's enough. I feel like we have so many questions during this season of history. So much wondering, if only we could figure out what happens with the vaccines, if only we could figure out what's going to happen with our own political situation, if only we could figure out what's going on in the Middle East, 
If only I could know that Missy will stay healthy until she's old and gives me grandchildren. If only I could, y'all, I don't think what we're really wanting is answers. I think what we're really desperate for is presence. The presence of God. And if you have the presence of God and you recognize his love in the dark, I'm telling you the joy you'll experience is exponential. Can I ask y'all to bow your heads and close your eyes? Dr. Howard's gonna come up and he's gonna pray for us. And I know this has taken a liberty I don't deserve. I do understand I am a guest here this morning. But I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads, not to be religious at all, just to be respectful for the men and the women, the image bearers here who are visiting. Some of them are are visiting maybe for the first time in a long time. Maybe they've been wounded in the church or wounded by hypocritical Christians, Christians who pretend like they have it all together instead of saying, I need prayer. And they were biking this morning and just happened to hear the band and stopped by. So just out of respect... For the image bearers around you, I want to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And then I'm going to ask something that I I don't deserve to ask. I'm going to ask it anyway. If you are in a difficult season, maybe it's not as dramatic or traumatic as Job. But you're in one of those seasons where you feel like if you could do what you wanted, you would collapse on the couch too. And you aren't sure when you'd get up. Maybe like me, the only people you really want to be with right now are Ben and Jerry. It's just been a tough season. If that's your story right now, no one else is looking around. Would you just slip up, slip up your right or your left hand so Dr. Howard can see who he's praying for? If you would just say, I'm, I'm struggling today. We're not going to have you come forward. Nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody's going to come to your house and ask you for money. Jim just wants to pray for you. So just keep your hands raised if you're in a difficult season for whatever reason. Just raise your hands so Jim can see who he's praying with him for. Father, I do pray for these people. Lord, uh, even the ones who didn't raise their hands, there are many, many here who have gone through such terrible experiences, tragedy, loss, grief. Uh, And we know you to be a good God. We know you to be a gracious God. We know you to be a God who cares, Um, one who listens to us. And that means a lot to us, that you love us so much that you would send your son and save us and redeem us. And you would hear us in our cries of anguish. The Bible's full of so many stories how you love to listen and love to engage with us. So, Father, I pray for these people that raise their hands and for those that uh, didn't raise their hands but are going through something very personal, that uh, that grace, which seems so elusive to us at times, would be very real in their lives right now, that they would see you in ways that they've never seen you in your grace before. Father, thank you for your kindness, for your generosity, for your care. You concern. In your son's name we pray because he is our high priest, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Can we say thank you to Lisa?